So good to have you with us. Uh, I'm really excited as we're journeying through this series called My Blank Family. It looks like some of you brought your family, which is a good thing. Um, I moved this weekend, and one thing I figured out that I kind of knew was true about the last 28 years of my life is that I'm a little bit of a control freak. Any other control freaks in the room are bold enough to admit it? Only a few of you, okay, the rest of you have some soul searching. This sermon's for you, apparently. But we all are. We all have some degree of control freak in us. There's a desire for every single one of us to control a little bit, to manipulate a little bit, to have a handle and and figure out how do we determine some outcomes of certain things in our life. Now, there's a really easy way to validate and figure out, are you a control freak? There's going to be three statements on the screen. Maybe you said them. Uh, Let's fire away on the first one. I'm totally flexible as long as everything is exactly the way I want it. You ever said anything like that? <laughs> the control freaks are like, duh, that's how it works. Number two, let's go to number two. I love this one. I'm not a control freak, but can I show you the right way to do that? <laughs> I've said that one before, for sure. Our staff has probably heard that once or twice. Number three, I hate it when I plan my day and no one else follows the plan. Like, I hate when that happens. Control freaks are everywhere. There's part of us. Um, I see it in my own life every time I go to Chipotle. Because there's a part of me that loves to be able to control how many beans I get, how much rice I get, how much sauce I get, how much veggies I get. Like, I get get to control it, and they have to do it. That's the best part. Like, on the other side, they're like, sure, okay, triple bean, whatever. Like, I'll just do it. Like, they just move through the whole line. There's part of me that that secretly loves that. Uh, Maybe you've tried to control other drivers on the road before. And you talk to them out loud. Some of you do this. You drive, and you're like, no, 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 don't go that Oh, they went that way. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm right here. And they're way in front of you, or, or they're starting to slide in the ice. Like, no, 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 pump the brake, pump the brake. And they just go right through the light. Like, we're in the, about to be in the season of winter Michigan driving. I'm going to be talking to a lot of other drivers uh, in that season. Uh, but I wish I could control them. How about this? If you're married in the room, uh, you know that how the bed is made. You might be a control freak about that. You may say, no, honey, you can make the bed. And then they make you like, you know, you did that the wrong way, right? Like there's an objective right or wrong way to make the bed. But I bet that beyond those things, which are kind of funny, they're kind of lighthearted. There's probably some stuff in your life that you wish you could control for real. Maybe it's a family situation right now. Maybe it's a relationship Maybe it is a financial dis, uh, discussion in your home. You're trying to control some things. Maybe it's your kids right now. You're like, man, I just kind of wish I could kind of program them to do exactly what I want, say what I'd like them to say, and operate the way I'd like them to operate. And I bet there's something in your life right now that actually probably keeps you up at night. There's probably some things that you wish you could control that, that maybe give some sleepless nights or make you sweat a little bit when you think about it or make your heart pound a little faster when you think about them. And uh, I'll just go first. For me, if I'm brutally honest, I think for me, there's part of me as a pastor that would love to control this. That would love to control our church, would love to control our perception in the community, would love to control my own perception in the community. Like, hey, I want other people to know I'm a good leader. I'm a good pastor. I'm a successful, competent person. And yet there's part of me that I can't control that. And that frustrates me. And sometimes it keeps me up at night. I wish I could control those things, but there's probably something like that for you. And I want us to do this before we even go into the scripture for the morning. I want you to think about that one thing. 
that keeps you up at night, that you wish you could control, you wish you could manipulate into turning out the way you want. And I want you to literally think about it, and I want you to put your fists together and pretend it's in your hands. Seriously, do this right now. Put it out. What's the one thing? And you're going to put it in your hands right now and just clench your fists like this. Again, that could be a family thing. It could be a money thing. That could just be a life-calling thing. It could be a painful thing. What is it? What's the one thing? What's the thing you wish you could control? And sometimes you just can't. What's the thing you wish you could manipulate? And you can let them go. Because here's what I know is that no one is born with a spirit of, I want to manipulate my life. I want to control people. I want to make sure my family knows that I'm the boss and, and I'm going to determine outcomes for them. Or in my relationships, I'm going to be domineering and, and overbearing and codependent. Like none of us start out in life like that. But there's something that happens the older we get that we become more and more of control freaks. I don't know why it is. It's probably sin, but it just happens. So how do we move past that? What if there was a way that you and I could to live control free? What if there's a way we could live manipulation free? What if our life didn't have to be deceitful and cunning and overbearing in some areas and passive in others? Like what if we could just live free of all of that and live the family life, the relational life, the personal life that God intended it to be from the beginning. And last week, we journeyed through this, this very first week of my blank family. Now, when I say my blank family, you probably already have a word that you inserted. If you're here last week, you're watching online, and uh, you already have what that is in your mind. Last week, we talked about what it looks like to be a divided family. As we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and all of these shortcuts Abraham took to get to God's blessing. The story is wild though. If you even went back and read it later in the week, you probably saw like, my goodness, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Like this is outrageous. It's basically like the real housewives of Genesis going on in the book of Genesis. It's kind of wild. It's like, how is this even in it? But it's there. And Abraham and Sarah eventually have a son, and his name is Isaac. We're looking at his story today. I'm going to invite you, if you've got a Bible or something to turn with, maybe you have it on your phone as an app. You can also find it in the Zero Collective app. But if you go to Genesis 25, we're going to look at just a slice of this story and how it begins to unfold. Uh, it doesn't get less weird. That's all I have to say. It gets a little crazy. So in Genesis 25, I'm going to jump right into verse 19. Because Jacob and Esau and what we're about to read are born, they're really answers to prayer. And in verse 19, here's where we catch up with the story. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son. Remember last weekend? Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, from Padam, Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. One little funny footnote there is Isaac was 40 years old. So if you're 16 and you don't have a girlfriend or boyfriend, you're good. Okay? Take your time. You'll be fine. He was 40, just figuring out the romantic relationships. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. But the Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? If you've been pregnant in the room, maybe you've screamed out those same words. Like, why is this happening to me? This is crazy. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separate. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Remember what happened with Abraham and Hagar, with Ishmael, and then with Sarah and with Isaac. It's just division. And that story is being continued, unfortunately, through his kids' lives. Verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, and with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. That's for real. So you got one baby who's really hairy, and you got one baby who's like a Johnson & Johnson commercial. Like, that's what you have going on here. It's wild, and there's that weird footnote, almost feels like it's insignificant, that on the way out of the womb, that Jacob is grabbing Esau's heel. Like his name, if you take it all the way to like the root, is heel grabber. Very nice. So if you're named after Jacob in the room, just a heads up, you may get made fun of at Thanksgiving. Now that everyone knows that, that could be a reality. So heel grabber, but it also in the, in the ancient world would have identified you as someone who's a manipulator. Someone who takes advantage of someone else. Someone who tries to control someone else. And by kind of figuratively, but also physically, taking a hold of his older brother. He's taking a hold of what he has. He's trying to take advantage of a situation. And in Genesis 26, if we skip ahead, you see that Isaac, his dad, begins to lie to the leader of the nation. There's deceit there. There's manipulation. And then in verse 27, or chapter 27, it continues. Chapter 27, verse 1, this is the story we're going to camp on for the morning. If you want to turn there or pull it up on your phone, it'll be there. 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm an old man. don't know the day of my death. Now then get your equipment, your quiver and bow. Go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. I literally did not plan to read the Hunter's Passage on opening weekend in Michigan, but here we are. It just worked out that way. God is very faithful. He's good. He's speaking all the time. And what I think is interesting about what we're going to keep reading is that in manipulation, and as his family tries to control one another, a blessing ultimately turns into a bad thing. That, that God's plan for them, his promises to them, they ultimately start to unravel because they kept taking shortcuts and kept controlling one another. Verse 5 of chapter 27. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game, prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take your father, take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. You're like, why are they so concerned and manipulating blessing? Well, remember Abraham's story as well. God said, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to give you kids. But Abraham took a shortcut and ended up with a divided family, the ones that we still feel today, the, the ramifications we still exist within today, even in our own families. It's division. It's shortcuts. 
In the same way, Isaac is saying to his oldest son Esau, you're going to get the blessing that you deserve. Blessing is not just a nice thing. It's not just kind of final words. Blessing was passing on financial control of a family. Blessing was passing on the destiny of the family, where they're going to live, all of the property, wealth, livestock, everything. If, if your dad gave you the blessing, it's yours. And so Esau had a lot at stake in that blessing. He really wanted to get the blessing. And as the oldest, he was the first one to get it. He would be rightfully the one to receive the blessing. And yet Rebecca begins to manipulate. Rebecca begins to want to control. She says, well, I don't actually like the hairy son that much. I like, I like the clean cut Jacob. Like he's my favorite son. And parents, you have favorites, right? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand if your kids are in here. That's mean. Don't do that. But here they're clearly playing favorites. Isaac is saying, I prefer Esau. Rebecca is saying, well, I prefer Jacob. And they're both manipulating the family, the entire story, to try to get to the outcome they want. But in manipulation, that blessing that... Hey, Brandon, appreciate you, man. So in, in manipulation, that blessing actually ends up turning into a bad thing. It, it's the story of Isaac and Rebecca, the family that longed to control. So let's skip ahead to verse 10. She says, take it to your father to eat so he may give you his blessing before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I'd appear to be tricking him, appear to be manipulating him, and I'd bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Control, manipulation, deceit, it's all in the story. Verse 14, so he went and got them, brought them to his mother. She prepared the food just the way he liked it. She covers his hands, tricks her husband. In verse 18, he goes into his father's deathbed. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Some translations say, what's your name? Who are you? 19, Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau. You're firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up, eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly? The Lord your God gave me success. Manipulation, control, using God's name in vain. It's, it's all here in the story. And this ceremony of blessing would have been done in private pretty much never. Like every single time this blessing ceremony would have taken place, it was because the whole family was gathered, the whole house is gathered, everyone was there, and yet even Isaac is doing this part of God's will in secret. It's in private. It's control. It's deciding to take matters into his own hands. And we're going to finish out the story in just a minute, but I think as you read through the story, you see this, that manipulation ultimately helps me control my life and family. And sometimes they use God to do it. Sometimes they say, well, this is God's will. This is what he wants. Clearly, I'm in the right here. Manipulation helps me control my life and family. But here's what's true of us as followers of Christ. Following Jesus means I give him control of my life and family. It means that I surrender the ability to micromanage my kids and my spouse and my best friends and my relatives and my cousins and my grandparents. I, I, I give Jesus control of that. I don't give him necessarily leadership or authority to, to make, let me be a bad parent or to kind of skip out on responsibility, but I give him control of the outcomes. 
Say, God, I'm going to faithfully parent as best as I can, but ultimately these children are yours. You love them. You care about them. I'm going to give them to you. And the same is true with the spouse. As much as I love Lindsay, there's not an ounce of me that can really control how her life goes. I can control the small part of it that I can control, but ultimately there, there comes a point in our marriage where I have to say, Jesus, you created her. You love her. You are for her. I'm going to give control of that relationship to you. Our marriage is yours. If you have grandkids in the room, it's the same thing. That as much as you'd like to micromanage their parents. For your kids, by the way. to control my outcomes. There's still part of me that wants to control my family and how things go, how my parents respond to events, how my siblings respond to events. As the oldest kid, there's that part of me that is just inherently a control freak, but Jesus doesn't do that. As you read throughout the entire gospel narrative, we see Jesus giving up control, surrendering himself, going to death even on a cross for you and me, and it was a full act of surrender. There's even that moment in the garden, Jesus is kneeling and he's praying. He's saying, God, if there's any other way, I would really prefer not to go to the cross, but not my will, not my control, not my agenda, but yours. I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to empty myself. I'm going to lay it all down because following Jesus means I give him control as you read throughout Jacob's story, this son who was born as a manipulator, who, who really doesn't do things the way that God had planned for his family, as you skip ahead to Jacob, uh, um, chapter 32, we see Jacob having this incredible moment wrestling with God. Now, whether that's literally God or this is written in in Genesis to communicate a God-like encounter, I'm not fully sure. I wasn't there. You weren't there. But it is intended to show us what this conversation that Jacob has with his heavenly father, with his creator. And remember what happened in the very first moment in which Jacob manipulated and, and deceived his dad. Isaac asked him, what's your name? Who are you? Who is this? Because he can't see. And in Genesis 32, this kind of final chapter of Jacob's life, he's wrestling with God. And what does God ask him first? What's your name? What's your identity? Who are you? And before, Jacob manipulated and controlled and said, I'm Esau. I'm, I'm the hairy one. I was just out hunting. God gave me success. Here I am. Give me your blessing. And, and Isaac blesses the wrong kid. Messes up their family dynamics forever. Rebecca's pleased, and, Jake, and Esau clearly is not. You can read the story. He's outraged. And yet, just a few chapters later, because God is faithful and he is good, when God asks, what's your name? He realizes he's been caught. 
He's exposed. He says, I'm Jacob. God changes his name to Israel, and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Judah, would signify the coming kingdom of God, all follow his family line. The 12 disciples mirror that same truth. And eventually, Isaac in Matthew 1 in the gospel story is listed as the father of the Israelite and Jewish faith. It's an incredible redemption story. And so much of our manipulation just comes down to the small choices. It could be in a marriage. It could be in a family. It could be with your grandkids. It could be with a cousin you have or, or live-in aunt or uncle. Like, I don't know what the situations of your family are. But often it comes down to those choices. I love what A.W. Tozer says about choices and surrender. Uh, he's a theologian and author, and he writes this, that the man or woman who is wholly surrendered to Christ can't make a wrong choice. Any choice they make will be the right one. I think that's powerful. When it comes to our own families and our marriages and our parenting and our grandparenting, it's not about whether or not this is the right choice or not. It's about, am I surrendered? Am I making the ultimate right choice? Am I allowing God to have control? Am I giving him over that? Am I laying my rights down so that I can have the family that God wants for me, the family that my kids really need? Instead of parenting into a mold and figuring out how do I manipulate my kids to act this way or they don't even like lacrosse, but I'm going to make them play lacrosse because I sucked at lacrosse. Like, I don't know. Like, we all have families like that around us, and maybe we are one of them. Or we try to fit them into that mold, and we don't get the outcome we want, which leaves us frustrated and, and angry. Maybe you're newly married or you're dating, and you're trying to figure that out. Eventually, you're going to come to a point where, like, I literally cannot control this person the way I thought. And every year that marriage goes by, and every year you're faithful and you grow in maturity to Christ, you realize that marriage is not about controlling your spouse to be the person you really want. It's about giving up that control to Jesus, saying, God, you have my marriage. I'm in this for you. You can lead us. You can be our guide. Remember last weekend, Jesus doesn't offer just a clean, direct map where we just get to plot our own course and figure it out, but he does offer to be our guide. Say so that every single moment, I will be with you. If you day by day decide, I'm going to give Jesus control. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to put my feet on the floor and say, God, my marriage is yours. My family is yours. My kids are yours. My future kids are yours. My future spouse is yours. My singleness, it's yours. I'm going to give it to you. You will see God do the impossible. You'll see him do the supernatural through it. And, and day by day, if you just follow Jesus's example, laying that down. Uh, some of you, this is going to be completely obvious to you, but I'm kind of a history nerd. I love looking back over the centuries and seeing how God moved and what he did right now. I am painfully, slowly, laboriously walking through the journals of Lewis, Lewis and Clark. How interesting is that to anybody else? What? I, I can't, I'm shocked. There's two of you. We're going to hang out later for book club. But the, uh, I'm working through these journals. It's a very slow process. They didn't really write that well, so it's even more painful to read. But uh, during the same kind of time frame as America was getting its foundations, in 1727, there was a group of people in what was Monrovia, in the area of Moravia of Monrovia, called uh, the Moravians. Shocker. That's a great name if you live in Moravia. That's what you should be called. That's a great spot. So they're there, and they were living together in community. There were churches and different plants connected. But in 1727, they felt a burden from God to start beginning to just pray. 
They started a 24-7 prayer movement in this small town of Hernhut. There's a location there. And in Hernhut, they begin praying for 24-7. They just continued around the clock. Groups and individuals, leaders, city officials, servants, they all began to pray. And just like 50, 60 years after this point, they had already sent out 300 missionaries. Because when you have an encounter with God, it doesn't leave you the same. You can't just stay there. You have to let other people know. And some of you who have followed Jesus and you're sharing your faith, you're inviting your friends to Center Church, you know that there's a contagious element to that faith. It's incredible. But they did something at every single prayer meeting that I think is fascinating. They actually began with the prayer that we just did at the beginning. They would clench something in their fists. They would say, this is what I want to control. This is what I need to surrender to Jesus. I'm going I'm to acknowledge that. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm going to acknowledge it. And I'm going to, on the second step of this prayer, I'm going to, to release it to God. I'm going to flip my palms over. I'm going to release it, drop it on the ground so it's not important anymore. I give him control of the situation. And then they would flip their hands up, kind of step three of the prayer. They flip their hands up and they say, God, I want to receive your life. I want to surrender to you, but I want you to fill me with your spirit. I need your joy. I need your wisdom. I need your discernment. I need your, your peace. I'm going to receive that today. I'm going to flip my hands over and receive it. And they would do this prayer almost every single time they gathered for 100 years straight. They would pray these incredible prayers of surrender. The small town of Hernhut, they began this movement that led to hundreds of people coming to know Christ. Thousands of countries, there are hundreds of countries reached by the gospel that previously had not been reached. And that's kind of what's at stake for us. You may say, I'm not Moravian. I don't live in a place called Hernhut. What am I supposed to do with all of that? Our choice today, we could all walk out of here and decide we're going to keep manipulating. We're going to keep controlling. We're going to keep making the decisions for God. Or we can decide to let God be God. To do as much as we can, but to allow him to, to run our lives to allow him to determine the steps for our family, to allow him to determine what our marriage should be about. We could keep being control freaks or we can keep surrendering to him. That's the decision today. And so before we sing this next song, I, I just think it's the right thing to a hundred, couple hundred years later to pray those same basic prayers. God, I surrender to you. I release these things to you and I want to be filled by you. And so I invite you just to close your eyes and bow your head and to clench those fists again. What is the thing? What's the control thing for you right now? For me, I've got my hands extended. God, there's some things that I want to control. Now begin to flip your hand over to release those things, to drop them on the ground saying, God, they're not mine to carry. I can't figure them out. I am not competent to deal with these things. I depend on you. And then to flip them upside down, to with palms to the heavens, just say, God, would you fill me with you? God, would you fill our church today? Would you fill our families with you? We desperately need you. We are not enough. And with hands open, God, I pray that as a church, you would mark us with your peace, we would be the kind of people that irrationally surrender our lives to you. That our families wouldn't be manipulative, we wouldn't be controlling, we wouldn't be divided. We would just be the kind of families that live into the blessing 
you want to provide. For some of us, God, I realize that's difficult. For some of us, that's a big decision. For some of us, we don't see the way, but God, you are the way maker. For some of us, we don't know what you're doing, but God, you are a promise keeper. For some of us, God, our families don't know you. Our spouse is far from you. Our kids are far from you. Our, our grandkids don't know you. And yet, God, you promise throughout the scriptures, you're a light in the darkness. It's who you are, God. So, God, I pray that as we continue with our journey with you, maybe we're just asking questions, maybe we're mature in our faith. God, would you help us to surrender? Would you help us to live open-handed? Because we trust you. You are good and faithful. We give these situations that we desperately want to control to you. We love you and you pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.